It's the Hoffman Show on the Team 980, always live as well on the free Odyssey app. Uh, that goober of a man, Clinton Yates, will join us coming up at 4.30 today uh, to continue to discuss the Wizards' move to Virginia. Also, a very interesting article at Anscape today, uh, the site that Clinton works for, uh, of course, a sub subsite of ESPN.com on uh, specifically how black D.C. residents are reacting to the move and specifically black D.C. residents that actually go to Capital One Arena. We talk so much about this in theory, but what about folks that actually go to the games? Well, uh, one of Anscape's reporters went to Capital One Arena and reported on such things. Imagine that, reporting. Uh, so we will talk to him coming up at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, but I, I uh, Anthony, as I walked over to the studio out of my prep uh, area, Essig comes out of where you're sitting right now, and he goes, good luck. We riled him up a little bit today. Is he talking about the rooster, or is he talking about Linnell? I think he's talking about the fan base. Oh, the fan base. So people listening that have carried themselves over, uh, mm. across the magical threshold of 4 o'clock from their show into our show. Yep. Apparently a little spicy. Because they asked the question... And it's so funny, right? Linnell and I yesterday had a very civil conversation. We already knew it was going to be civil. Civil, insightful. Mm. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was really good. <laughs> it generated a lot of uh, interesting YouTube comments. Never read the comments coming at five thirty. Um, you know, I, we never yelled at each other. We made our points. Then they come in today and ask if Ron Rivera is incompetent. Uh, all right. We're just going there, huh? It's actually an interesting question. Kind of. Whether he is or not, like, what does it mean? At this point, whether he's competent or not, he would get, he's still getting fired in a couple weeks, which at this point we say flippantly because it's a foregone conclusion, but like, you know, this is a grown man and probably, by the way, this is the end for him uh, as it certainly is an NFL head coach. I don't know. Can he? Here's here's a fun one. Can Ron Rivera do enough as a defensive coordinator the next three weeks to get another coordinator job? He would be an interesting DC potentially. Like if you're a if you're a young first time head coach, would you potentially hire Rivera as your DC and assistant head coach to have someone around who's done it? Or do you look at his career as a head coach and go, I'm actually not that interested in that. Nope. I mean, McVay did it with Wade Phillips, but Wade's reputation as a defensive coordinator even if it didn't work out for him in his few tries as a head coach his reputation as a defensive coordinator was exceptional ron hasn't been a defensive coordinator since 2000 when did he get to carolina 2011 is when cam was drafted 2010 was the last time he was an offensive coordinator you were like in middle school if not uh, younger i was on my way to high school yeah. I was a ninth grader. Would have been a ninth grader that year. Yeah. So, needless to say, I don't know whether that's going to be in Ron's future. Feels like he'll be a consultant advisor type. But we'll see. Um, I think the funny thing is, is like the answer is obviously yes, is Ron Rivera incompetent, which I don't say to be mean. Um, but like Essig, Essig uh, recited a definition let me, let me pull up the definition real quick. Essig just like had it off the top of his head. I was like, for all the silly stuff that you that you do, you just got definitions in your head like that? 
Incompetent. Incompetent means not having or showing the necessary skills to do something successfully. A forgetful and utterly incompetent assistant would be your word uh, to use in a sentence. Anthony, revenge time. Spell incompetent. Too easy. I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-N-T. Incompetent. Well done. Thank you. I was really hoping you wouldn't mess up because I don't have a bell. I don't have ding. Oh, no, he's missed it. He's incompetent at spelling incompetent. He lacks the necessary skills to accomplish the job. I mean, I think from an organizational standpoint, from a communication standpoint, from a human being management standpoint, like there's some stuff where Ron scores higher than in other areas. But I also think that like, one of the interesting things about his tenure here, and I know Linnell was like screaming about this point, was he has leaned very heavily on his coordinators here. That is a that is a choice he has made to delegate and let them do their thing. And I think it's two hands off. Like I, I disagree with the approach, but that approach can work. He just didn't execute it. Is that incompetent or did he do a bad? Does he lack the skill or did he just not use it? I don't know. I tend to think that when you've got three winning seasons and your entire coaching career, head coaching career that that spans 15 years nearly in the NFL, um, you probably lack the skills to to do the thing very well, especially when there was a point where you may have had the best offensive and defensive football player in the league on your team. Cam was that good for a, you know, 2015. They did make the Super Bowl. But Luke Keekley was the best defensive player in football probably at that time. Him, I mean, Aaron Donald was starting to get going. There's a couple other guys, obviously, J.J. Watt um, in the 2010s who were dominant. But, like, Luke was Luke was a force. And not only did they only make, you know, one deep playoff run in 2015, the year they put it all together and went 15-1 and before getting crushed by the Broncos in the Super Bowl, but they only had three winning seasons? And he's got zero here. So, I don't know. It's it's just... I actually don't think it's that interesting of a discussion the more I talk about it. Like, I realized that, you know, Chris was like, ah, he's just bad. It's not full-on incompetence. Linnell's, like, ready to light everything on fire because that's Linnell's thing. But at the end of the day, it's just... To me, it's sad. And it's reflective of a franchise that is is, like, flushing itself of all the incompetence, right? Piece by piece, as time goes, everyone who worked for Dan Snyder is going to be gone. Everyone who got their job because that's the best Dan could do or the or the person that Dan, who is 1,000% incompetent as an NFL owner, or was um, the best person that he thought was there for the job. But that's how incompetence, like when we talk about the stuff and it's like, that's not the owner's fault. It's this person's fault. It's like, well, the reason that person has a job is because it starts with the owner. The reason, you know, good organizations start at the top and why ownership is the thing that that tends to carry over is because the judgment that ownership has determines who gets the highest and most powerful positions. And then depending on how well they do at that, that person hires the next layer who hires the next layer who hires the next layer. 
And so if you get an incompetent owner who hires an incompetent team president, who hires an incompetent GM, who hires an incompetent head coach, who hires an incompetent staff, clearly there will be different levels of incompetence. And somewhere in there, they might hire a competent person and one thing might go right or, you know, half those might be good hires and the other half stink. But eventually the good ones will leave and you replace them probably with someone who's incompetent. And that's all this is. Like, incompetent, bad, whatever. Dan hired Bruce. That was whatever that was. Dan then hired Ron. Ron hired a GM in Martin Mayhew who had very little success as, a, as an actual lead GM. By the way, Ron was given power that he never had in Carolina that he absolutely was not up for in the personnel stuff. Um, and... Then they hired bad staff after bad staff. Whether it was Scott Turner and the people that he hired. You know, th- there are some hits. Yeah, Drew Terrell was a good wide receivers coach. Um, you know, Matt Scow was a fine offensive line coach. Not elite, but fine. Um, you know, then obviously Jack on the defensive side was hit or miss over the course of his years until there was no midseason turnaround this year. But the staff underneath them was terrible. And so... By NFL standards, in fairness to those guys, I'm not saying that I could outcoach them and they'd be probably be good at your local high school, but this is the league. These are the best of the best. And so, incompetence, bad, whatever. I guess the good news is it'll all be over soon. It's the Hoffman Show. We're on the Team 980. We're always live as well on the free Odyssey app. Uh, apparently, everyone's fired up, though, so let's do this. Let's take some calls on this next. 301-230-0980. Your commander's thoughts, like, Commander's free flowing mailbag, if you will, but you know, call version, voice voicemail for the next uh, fifteen minutes or so, and then Clinton Yates will join us coming up at four thirty. We're uh, streaming live on YouTube at the Team Nine Eighty, of course, on your radio nine eighty AM one zero six seven HD two on your HD radio, and streaming live always on the free Odyssey app. It's the Hoffman Show. We're on the Team Nine Eighty. We're always live as well on the free Odyssey app. Uh, phone lines are wide open. 301-230-0980. It's the Ace Law listener line. If you're in a wreck, Ace Law helps you get a check. Call 8888-ACE-LAW. Uh, anything Commanders, Jason. Happy to talk about it for the next 10-ish minutes. Uh, and then and then we uh, we talked to Clinton Yates coming up at 4.30. Um, I did. Uh, so Rachel and I, uh, my wife, had been meal prepping more recently. And... Uh, if I, my speech pattern is a little, uh, like, uh, syncopated right now. feels like I'm taking some extra breaths. It's because I took a bite of sandwich that was way too big uh, right before, or unbeknownst to me, way too close to when we came out of break. And some that's something that as a radio professional, I can, I can do better at. And so I apologize to you, the audience, but also uh, the sandwich that I, I took a bite of was a chicken salad sandwich. And I did bring Anthony some famous chicken salad. Oh, you still haven't unwrapped it yet? No, nah, I was uh, going to wait until Kalini ate. Oh, that's fair. In case you had to talk on the radio? Yeah. Unlike me, who dove into my sandwich in the break and now has to talk on the radio. Is that a fine? No, no I'm not. <laughs> I'm if I had like a mouthful <laughs> of food? Yes, absolutely. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, that would have been crazy. What was, what was that you just said? <laughs> yeah, no, I was just... Pretending just, uh, as yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, okay. 
Let's go to the phones. 301-230-0980. Let's go to Derek. Derek, thanks for calling. You are on the Hoffman Show. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Awesome. Thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, I just wanted to thank you guys. You guys are awesome. Um, you know, I've uh, made a few YouTube comments before. I've seen you guys have responded to those or liked those. I've called a couple of times. I listen to you guys every day. Appreciate on that, the YouTube stream. Um, love your points of view, your analysis. It's always great. You, Anthony, Logan, all that. But, um, yeah, just some thoughts. I mean, I wanted to respond. I was going to write a comment on your vibe check video from yesterday. Uh, you know how you were saying, you know, we've never done a, or somebody was saying that we've never done a proper rebuild. And so the only time that I had ever felt like maybe it might start going in the right direction was in 2015 after we brought in McLuhan because I thought that he was bringing in a good group of people or good players. Um, but then that quickly went off the deep end because of whatever happened there. <laughs> right. Um, but aside from just responding to that, I just wanted to, you know, say, you know, I do feel very hopeful that we are hopefully going to do this the right way. Finally, you know, the ownership that we have in place now doesn't probably isn't driven by ego or isn't trying to make the splash higher. So I'm happy that now they're finally going to go towards this um, analytics based approach um, with Eugene Shen and everything like that. Hopefully they bring in the right GM. Hopefully they bring in a, a head coach that can, in my point of view, I'd like to continue working with Sam. Um, I'd like for them to use those high draft picks and just build a good group of core players on the roster so that basically you can plug in, you can put Sam in and he'll be successful. I don't know if he'll be elite or anything, but he'll be exactly what you were mentioning about Kirk Cousins that, you know, he won't be, he'll be good enough. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I see about one of the points I want to mention about Sam and the reason I still believe in him is how many people gave up on Jerry Goff? Oh, yeah. No, people, I, uh, I mean, the Rams gave, gave up, up on Jerry Goff. Goff. And by the way, it might have been the right yeah. move for them at the time, but Detroit had more time. Exactly. Exactly. And when you put Jerry Goff in the right situation with the right staff, with the right head coach, with the right offensive coordinator, you know, you can, and with the right team around the quarterback, you know, you can do a lot. And so that's kind of just what I'm hopeful for. I'm just hopeful for, you know, a great off season where, you know, we are a desired destination, like everyone keeps saying. And so hopefully we can build a great team, a great staff around that and just start the proper rebuild. And Hey, hopefully it could be a quick turnaround. Yeah. I do think we have some good pl pieces in place already, but uh, yeah, just, just happy to see what comes out of this off season starting in uh about three weeks now. Yeah, Derek, thanks, thanks so much. Call, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the kind words and, and bringing up a bunch of great points. Derek just bought us a whole segment, Anthony, because there's like three things that he said that I actually really, I'm glad he brought up, one of which I hadn't thought of before. One of which uh, I will save, which is more of kind of the Kirk Cousins uh, comparisons because that is a comment that some folks have made and like varying versions of that or Dak Prescott or Goff um, and never read the comments today. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the other point first, and then if there's time to talk QB real quick, I will. Um, but when McLuhan was here, that was my first year on the beat. Was 15 when he was brought in, 
one of the things they actually had is something that they've severely lacked under Rivera's leadership, which is a clear organizational vision. Now, Scott had a ton of issues personally, um, which hopefully he's gotten straightened out and, you know, you wish him the best. I don't think he was a bad dude necessarily. He just, he had a problem and, and, you know, people battle their demons and that's, that's incredibly human. I think we all know people who have, and, and unfortunately for Scott, that was a part of his story here. Um, but he had a vision of how you build a football team and his vision was inside out to the point that he drafted a guard at whatever pick sheriff was four guard. And we, you know, we had a top five or top 10 pick and we took a guard. Yeah, but that guard helped you have one of the best offensive lines in football, which helped Kirk Cousins be better because you didn't have to worry about the pressure because you had Trent Williams and you had Brandon Sheriff and you could run the football even with guys like you know Fat Rob back in the day. Remember him? Yeah. So you had a way, and then obviously they started the John Allen, you know, kind of stuff the next year, um, and then it was pain, and then the problem was they kept going and kept drafting defensive linemen. Um, and if they had just done the first three, I think it would have been smart. Um, and But the problem was when they got on the board at two in 2020, Chase was thought to be a generational player. And so you don't pass on that guy. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Point is, um, they had a plan. And I've never felt, and that plan was... For a short time, something that everybody was on board with. It was going to help Jay and what he wanted to do offensively, defensively. Like they had a, a plan on how they wanted to do things, the kind of players that they wanted. And it, the front office was like, we have a vision. The coaches are going to execute it. We're cohesive. And unfortunately, because of the characters that were involved on a human level, it failed tremendously. And it even failed tremendously. It, it, it got cut off before it could ever get to anywhere meaningful. And obviously, McLuhan also royally screwed up the, the next year. Uh, I guess there was two years until they got John Allen, but they royally screwed up the Josh Doxson pick, um, a hill that I died on. I thought that kid was going to be awesome because um, he would show it every camp, and you're like, Phew, he's so smooth. And then he wouldn't do anything in the regular season. <sighs> but... You know, whether it was Crowder or whether it was whatever, like they had guys that they liked in a, in a style and a type. Um, I mean, even the mistakes they made were within that type. It just feels like with Rivera, they've consistently been throwing darts at a dartboard or at multiple dartboards. And you're like, hey, we're playing here. <laughs> we're playing a one dartboard. And that lack of organizational vision are we a run first team are we built around our defense are we we want to be a high flying offense do we want to be a speed team do we want to be a power team we're running zone we're running man there's no cohesiveness year to year sometimes within a year they came out of last year being like we want to run the football more we think that's the way to win and then they went and hired the most pass happy OC on the market. And again, like I I loved the hire. I thought it would go very differently than it has. But it wasn't what they said they wanted. And that's the problem. They jump around. You have no cohesive vision. Your roster doesn't get built in a way that fits your scheme. And your personnel doesn't match each other. You're, you can survive with this O-line in the NFL 
if your quarterback is Jacoby Brissett because he's a veteran who knows how to get rid of the football on time. You have a young quarterback who has a knack for holding the football. You need a better offensive line than this. So things like that, I think, are stuff that, like, a Scott McLuhan, when he's at his best, mistakes that he wouldn't make. And when we talk about Ron's, actually, to circle it back to the first segment, to talk about Ron's incompetence, right, it's that lack of general vision that you need as a general manager. It's the Hoffman Show. We're on the Team 980, always live as well on the free Odyssey app. When we get back, Clinton Yates joins us uh, for an interesting conversation. Continuing, there's, there's been more news today. Uh, Virginia lawmakers speaking out against the Wizards' move to their state. Yes, people on the Virginia side not exactly thrilled. And also just a, a larger conversation that kind of ropes in a, a, something that I've wanted to talk about with Clinton for a couple of weeks now, the Shohei Otani contract. Who gets paid in sports and who pays for sports? We'll make it make sense next on the Team 980. It's the Hoffman Show on the Team 980, always live as well on the free Odyssey app. And on this Wednesday, it is our pleasure to welcome in, as we do every Wednesday during the football season, my good friend, Clinton Yates. Clinton, happy Wednesday. (laughs) Hello, Hello, sir. How are you? It's actually raining in Los Angeles, so I'm currently at home making soup. That's what I'm doing. What What kind of soup? So right now, I threw some ginger some garlic and some turkey necks in my um, chicken bouillon. And then I'm going to add a little rosemary to it later and add some other uh, vegetables and make, you know, some chicken soup for the soul, buddy. Yeah. Chicken soup for the soul. That is, I think the name of a book um, that did very well in the early two thousands. It might be older than that, but maybe um, nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might be that that book was around when I was a kid. So at least I believe it was. So yeah, no, I'm a, just kind of freestyling it. Went to the grocery store this morning. I said, turkey necks. I like those. So I'll throw them in the soup. There you go. So it's really poultry soup. Correct. Yes. For, for <laughs> the soul. Right. Uh, for the soul. <laughs> All right. Uh, so your colleague at Anscape, Martenzi Johnson, wrote yep. a piece. Uh, what Black DC stands to lose with the Wizards move to Virginia. He did this crazy thing, Clinton called reporting. He went out to Capital One Arena. He talked to a bunch of folks, uh, specifically black folks around Capital One Arena, because we've talked kind of theoretically, hypothetically um, about the loss of the Wizards for uh, the city that is called Chocolate City. But he went out and actually talked to people who go to the games. I know you talked to him about this piece and and obviously read it. What did you make of the piece and, um, you know, anything else you want to add about the context of it? You know, this is obviously very near and dear to my heart as somebody that was born and raised in D.C., somebody that went to games um, at the Capitol Center, Hoyas games, Capitals games, Bullets games. They, of course, never played there as the Wizards. Somebody who went to games at was then MCI Center and sort of grew up with that building and eventually became a season ticket holder at one point. So uh, it is very personal to me. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about the larger context of this, which Kenzie touched on a bit, which is how much are y'all going to take from black folks in D.C.? Like, just on a basic level, like, how do you justify that in your mind if you're a franchise? And I'm not going to get after Theodore specifically because I've done enough of that. But even if he wasn't the owner, if you're a franchise that claims to be about community, I think there's a larger question of just, Okay, we understand in the business world of America, you've got a right to supply your wares wherever you like. But why would you really want to do this outside of greed? All of these conversations about, oh, it's unsafe downtown, and oh, the city screwed this up, and this, that, and the third. 
it just feels like a sellout move on a lot of levels to just move to a place that people don't even really already congregate. That's not going to make it better. So the soul, if we're talking about freaking chicken soup, the soul of this is really important because, you know, at a time when people did not support that team, people did not support that place. A lot of black folks down there got jobs. A lot of folks hung around to make it vibrant, make it anything. It was the product on the court or the product on the ice wasn't always what people wanted. So, you know, it's just he, what he showed is the reveal of such a cultural disconnect that I think the people at the top of Monumental have with the residents of D.C., never mind black folks that are willing to come in the city and stay in the city to watch those crappy ass teams play. Uh, again, Tenzi will join us coming up at six o'clock. We'll t- dive more into the details of the piece with him. But I actually think that links to the conversation that I was planning on having with you two weeks ago until this story broke which is yeah. a larger conversation of which this is a sub subset of. Um, but, it, you know, the larger conversation is really about all of us, uh, not race. It really is about class, which is like who gets paid in sports and who has to pay for it. And and I had yeah. that thought on the heels of the Otani contract where you just see this number and like you can dive into it and talk about how the actual like if you're an economist, the actual value is actually only about 35 million a year because of inflation and whatever. By the time that he gets the money, like whatever the numbers on paper are 10 years, 700 million dollars. And as most of us can't afford to go to a game in the same, certainly in the same frequency or maybe in the same seats that we used to. I just think that's like, I guess the question, Clinton, would be like, is there a breaking point and we are we getting closer to it where the pro sports bubble bursts because owners are making money hand over fist? And at this point, you have players that are going to be like there's a rookie in the NBA, whether now or soon, that is going to be the first billion dollar earner on salary alone. That's crazy. And, and I realize crazy. like players should get paid. I'm always for that. But at what yeah. point do we look at the people who are supplying the money, us, and go, no, 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 You could just not make us pay as much. I, you know, I think this brings up an interesting point because the two are connected. There is a corollary. But I also think it adds to the conversation about just what is an experience when we're talking about pro sports. And that's why when you kind of, not you, but when one kind of lends themselves on the side of, siding with a billionaire it just sounds so obtuse because it's like wait a second like what do you actually want out of this number one the caps have won exactly one stanley cup they have had playoff runs for years and years that experience is one thing but the wizards at a certain point this doesn't become worth it really literally for anybody i think you're right i'll get to show in a second but the purpose of what dc is a basketball town and the Wizards specifically being existing in Capital One Arena was, was part of the experience. People enjoyed gathering as a community in that location and its environs to be a part of it. And if you just move it somewhere else, that, that changes drastically. And we know that the price is going to go up. You can, just tell, you can just look at how much money they're asking for from Virginia. So, like, that alone, I think, is part of it, which is, how expensive does this get before nobody wants to do it or only people there are operating in some sort of a Super Bowl-type method? You've covered the Super Bowl. You know how it is. Home fans are not at that game. You right. don't want an environment like that for every single ball game, just so that you can say you got a better land deal. As it relates to Otani, baseball is a little different because, number one, there's more games by a lot. And so, you know, what the fan experience is is something slightly different. But I do think you're right. I feel that, listen – if it's going to cost $20 more 
you know, across the board for every person to go into Dodger Stadium and see Otani next year, that is going to price a lot of people out. And for a fan base like this one in Los Angeles that is primarily Mexican, look, that doesn't exactly bode well either. People like rooting for front runners. People like having top dollar talent on their team. But I think you're onto something there, Craig. I don't know what that point is where all of a sudden everybody says, well, heck, if they're making all this money off of TV revenue, I'll just stay my butt home and watch it on TV because my $500 is better spent on a flat screen than it is spent buying things down at the arena that nobody wants to go to anyway. You know, And so I, I do think that the price is one thing. But again, I, I just feel that these owners are so disconnected from what the actual experience is of being at a ball game. It's not priceless. It has a cost. It's America in 2023, soon to be 2024. And you look around and just say, literally, that old joke, in this economy? Absolutely not. <laughs> right. And the thing is, like, I always, and Clinton Yates, of course, commentator, ESPN, uh, also writer for Anscape and ESPN.com, is with us and also now the host of ESPN Daily most days. Uh, and so you can you can <laughs> check out ESPN Daily, you know, daily. daily. Um, <laughs> so to continue that thought though i was always someone to go back to kind of where you started that answer i was always someone that when people complained about how much money players were making i was like what do you want the owners to make it and it's like no right. like the players are the talent let the players make it but like to take it away from otani does dave lillard need to make 62 million dollars to play basketball like that seems insane and now i i feel like such an old man yelling at a cloud saying that out loud but even if you want to look at the TV side, like cable's expensive as hell or Fubo yeah. TV or YouTube TV, like of, we're paying for this as fans and how the owners and the players split it up is of course relevant. And at some point there is like a capitalism, you know, level to this. It's like, well, you are what people are worth paying for. But I, I just, I, my question really, and I don't expect you to have an answer. This is a thought no, exercise no, between the two of us. Um, is like, where does that bubble burst? And I think the community part is really interesting too. And I'm trying to remember where, what I was listening to earlier today that was talking about this, but community in general is down, right? You know, community yeah. where you used to have, like re organize religion for years I and mean, for centuries was the place that people went for community. And there was fewer people participating in organized religion. I'm not putting a right or wrong on that. It just is a fact of modern Western life. That that is true. Yeah. And so sports is a place that we still find that. And so I do think that there is room still in that bubble before it bursts. But if folks aren't care careful, it will burst. Absolutely. And I said, if you look at the changes that have been made to Capital One Arena specifically over the last couple of years, number one, putting a sports book in there. Number two, trying to basically build a bottle service club courtside. Like, it's just. You think to yourself, what are we actually going for here? And, you know, since we're in this thought exercise to kind of spin this forward, I do think there is a world in which one of these guys who owns a team, and, I, you know, you could put this on any sport, particularly someone who did not make their money in sports, will eventually understand what the purpose of community is and realize that if people aren't willing to show up, none of this matters otherwise. Players don't right. want to play in empty buildings with fans who don't care. And it looks bad on television for partners and everybody else. I do think, I don't know if it's a burst bubble, but at some point there's going to be an owner that says, you know what? I'm not charging outrageous prices. I'm making the money anyway, because more people here who want to be here more often is going to matter. The subject of, let's just say, basketball-related income, to kind of get into the chalk talk of it, is not exactly separate. It is related, because I do think that there is – 
it's kind of a two-channel discussion. It's, man, that guy's making a lot of money. And B, well, they deserve it, but if they deserve that much money and the owners are clearly making that much money on them, why am I paying so much? You know what I'm saying? And, like, yes, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to wrangle with. And, you know, I think about parents now who want to be a part of those communities. You talked about the organized element of society and where we are, you know, in the Western world. My dad's been in California for a week, and half of what we talk about – our games I went to at RFK with him to see the football team. He's currently a Nat season ticket holder, and I'll pop in and go to games with him there. Games we went to to see the Hoyas and this, that, and the third. Like, the memories are what matter. But if they don't even have the opportunity to get off the ground because the economic hurdle is so high, like, at that point, at what cost? What have you done? You know what I mean? And that's where I think that it's really difficult for people who, A, aren't from the area, or, B, have no real vested interest in any of these properties or communities outside of the dollars that they can make just don't understand there is a shelf life on this stuff you can see your fan base walking right out of the door because it happened at fedex this is not some foreign concept if it gets too ridiculous people will stop showing up and i think that's as important as anything that is a threat but just as kind of an overall understanding of what really will happen if this doesn't go well they've made the playoffs i mean they've won a postseason series what six times in 30 years come on guys yeah, they've never made a conference finals since uh, the year after they won the title, which is the longest streak of any team that has been around since that time. They also have won 50 games. They're the only team that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. What you just said sparked two thoughts, and one of them is off of something John Thompson III said to Grant and Danny last week when he was like, Guys, it's only four and a half miles. Like we're and and ultimately, you know, we're going to serve our fans better. And my response, and we're hoping to get JT three on. We've had some scheduling snafus as everyone's schedule is crazy right now. But like, my thing would be like, who who are you serving? Like, do I have any doubt that a fan that's going to go to this new amazing arena in Alexandria in a vacuum will probably have a better time and more options and all the things than they would at Capital One Arena? Yes, but it's going to be a different fan, and that's important. And if you see this in, for instance, uh, to, to go outside of, of the Beltway by a lot, um, for yeah. an example, who goes to San Francisco 49ers games now when, the, when they were at Candlestick just outside the city uh, versus the Santa Clara, you know, tech corporate crowd, bunch of people yeah. in suits? Like, it's a very different experience, and it's a different experience in the stadium for the players and, like, how the crowd reacts to stuff. But you talk about those memories of no one's being like, oh, I remember when I was there with my corporate client. It's like, no, you have the memories with your family. You have the memories. You specifically just talked about these memories with your pops. Shout out to yeah. Earl, of course. And I yes, and, and to kind of the second thing to kind of bring that together to show what it can be. You watch Welcome to Wrexham, yeah? yeah Are you you're at least familiar with it? Yeah, I just I'm familiar with Wrexham, and I know where you're going with this. There's but something like, that can be achieved when you tap into that that money can't pay for. Right, by, and, by, and so Rob, for those that don't know, well, Wrexham soccer team in Wales falling on hard times. Ryan Reynolds, yeah. Rob McElhenney, Hollywood superstars buy it, and their whole mission statement was not we got to make money on this. It was we've got to make this good for the community. And in the way that they've acted, they have done that. They've also told an incredible story and series of stories through a documentary. And between the documentary, how well they've done with the club and decisions they've made about the club, I guarantee you they're making the money anyway, probably much more than if they had tried to employ like a money-making strategy. And that's the thing right. I don't understand, Clinton, is like 
people, I think, want to be sports owners and employ quote-unquote business strategies to sports that don't apply to sports. And if you look at the way the teams that succeed, they do it a community-based way, and the teams that fail, they do it uh, – you know, the football team way the last 25 years under Snyder, and you wind up with an empty FedEx field every weekend. You saw it in Atlanta when the Atlanta baseball team moved from Fulton County Stadium all the way out to Smyrna, which is in Cobb County. Totally different experience, and people in ATL will still tell you that they haven't been to Braves games since that happened. You saw it when Europe tried to break off with the Super League in terms of those differences. to get to a soccer example, and the communities are like, you are absolutely not doing this. We are going to burn your building down if you try this. Like, literally, physically take to the streets. And I just this is where it moves from anger to kind of sadness because if somebody who's been in this town that long and is allegedly sold against the likeness of this community in order to make money still doesn't get that part, man, that's sad. And it's also kind of professionally embarrassing because if you're not even competing, the very least you could do is make it centralized, make it fun and make it accessible to somehow try to imply that both or what the standard of your operation is when, hello, y'all ain't won jack outside of one season on the ice. Like, I'm sorry, do you think people are stupid? This is the capital of the United States of America, buddy. People understand what the value of a dollar is almost better than anywhere else in the country because the folks who make those decisions are right there. And so I just, like, it's odious in a way that it's not just to my personal sensibilities as a D.C. native. It just feels so nakedly incorrect and greedy that you're just kind of like dude do you have any idea what's going on in the world right now because this is flatly a bad look never mind a bad decision yeah uh last thing for you real quick on the way out uh, yeah. on that line uh, again clinton yates espn with us like if this happens in milwaukee if this happens in i mean atlanta detroit do you think it's the same as it is here because of exactly what you just said like people in dc because of the intelligence of people here, let's toot our own horns. This is like the smartest metro area in the maybe the world, uh, certainly in the in the country, with all due respect to many other highly educated places. But people are willing to stand on values here in a way that they are not in a lot of other places. Like, Do you think yeah. that is an actual real compounding thing or is that a thing that we're telling ourselves to feel better because it feels like then we get to stand on a moral high ground? The license plates have said taxation without representation for a reason. District folks understand, black or otherwise, what it's like to be disenfranchised from your own situation and not being able to give, not being given agency in what it is that you are ultimately working towards. I know that sounds a little high-minded for a discussion about a sports team, but it matters. This is part of what the fabric of what D.C. is about. And so if you start doing things that people feel is unfair, unnecessary, or even untoward, yeah, you're going to hear it, and it's going to cost you. And I do think that there is an element there about the district in specific, never mind the demographics, the political situation of the circumstances around how the city exists at all plays into this. Things people know. Things people who attended, hello, Georgetown University, which, by the by, just got paying a bunch of families off for the parents who they never paid who were indentured, you know, indentured slaves. Like, if you go to Georgetown, you should know this. You should have a much better understanding of this as an institute of higher learning, never mind a person in America. And it's just, it's just kind of sad to think that somebody who allegedly claimed to be such a large part of what the district was trying to do seems so openly and willing to gut what it is that they built, that he built and that other people built around him for the sake of just goodwill. Clint Yates, ESPN. Uh, catch him on ESPN Daily. What was the what was the topic today? 
Topic today was part two of Brittany Griner's return from Russia. I oh, sat nice. down with TJ Quinn to have a two-part discussion. It's the year anniversary around this month. It was about two weeks ago last year. Yeah, TJ and did he a huge piece details. on it. Yeah, exactly. He revealed some new details about exactly what happened in terms of the actual human exchange of people that had to go down and her time in a literal prison camp in Russia. Pretty wild stuff. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so if you want more on that, uh, and of course the biggest stories in sports daily, Clinton's got them on ESPN Daily, wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, of course readers work ESPN, and, and occasionally if you watch uh, you know, television, he'll show up in a box <laughs> talking to Tony Reality and three other people. Correct. Uh, it's a little show that's been around for like, you know, five seconds called Around the Horn. Maybe it'll maybe it'll succeed if it gives you a little bit more time. Uh, how go uh, go check on your soup. I will. All Happy right. Happy Kwanzaa and Happy Kwanzaa, man. <laughs> I had to make sure Ant's awake over there. All right, see you, Clint. Bye, Bye. I'll talk to you later. See you. That is Clint Yates, everybody, with us here on The Hoffman Show. That sports bubble conversation is one that I would like to continue to have in the – like, it's not going to happen in the next two weeks. Um, it's going to be something that's gradual over time. Like, I don't think there's going to be a housing bubble situation where, like, it literally pops and then all of a sudden the entire sports infrastructure world, like, <laughs> crashes. But, like, maybe, like, an Evan Novi Williams, uh, our, our guy from Sportico, would be a good guest on that. Um, I think getting Andy Zimbalas, the economist we had last week back on the show, he could be an interesting person. I don't, I don't know who the right person is because in many ways, and like I honestly, it's something that I would just love to like dedicate a show to sometime in the offseason and be like, we're going to take calls on this. We're going to have expert guests. We're going to have conversations amongst ourselves, you know, bring in uh, other hosts, things like that. You know, someone like Sheehan, I think would be pretty fascinating. Uh, someone who's gone to so many games, whether it's Terps games, Wizards games, uh, you know, Washington football games over the years. Like, I... Grant would be really fascinating. Um, Grant, someone who's been a fan of these teams forever and is gone, goes to games and ha is going to games with an expanded family now. Like, what what's it like going with a family? You know, he had three. Now he's got a family of four. Uh, I think he's just had, a, had another one. So, you know, when you got multiple kids, like that, that hypothetical, oh, what does it cost to go to a game for a family of four? I would like to know and, and how that's evolved over the course of years. And at what point do people just go, like, I'm out on this. And this is the thing that, like, Leonsis needs to understand. And if I was advising him, I'd be like, yo, Ted, listen to me on this. Every piece of friction you add for people going to games and for basically everyone who doesn't live in Alexandria, it got harder to go to games unless you live south of of Alexandria, right? So if you're in Fredericksburg or you're like way south, not the base of the Wizards fan base by any stretch, yes, it is easier for you to go to games starting in 2028, presuming this all gets to the finish line. But if you live on the I-66 corridor, it ain't that much easier to get to Alexandria, if it's even easier at all, than it is to get to D.C. As someone who used to live in Reston, the 267 corridor, I don't think it's easier to get to Alexandria. I hate crossing that bridge. Um, and I'd rather just, at that point, go into D.C. Um, and maybe it's a little easier depending on the day, but I don't know. With game traffic, that's going to be a nightmare. Um, obviously, everyone in Maryland, everyone in D.C., it's way harder. Anyone who's trying to get there on public transportation, you've added layers and barriers for people to get there. And they are thus less likely to actually make the effort to get there. And that seems like a really relevant piece of information versus just, 
We got a bunch of money from Virginia, and we got a bunch of space out here. It's like, okay, for what? Because eventually you're going to have to make that stuff because they got a bunch of money, but they didn't get all of it. Got to make it back. And um, also people in Virginia are going to want you to make it back. There was uh, uh, Clinton sent me this. I forgot to bring it up with him. But, um, you know, on the Virginia side of this, there was a state legislature or legislator who tweeted the other day that was basically like, if you think I'm going to approve more money for an arena in Northern Virginia before uh, toll relief and schools in Hampton Roads that, you know, where she uh, is representing down in the 757, you must think I have dumbass written on my forehead. I don't think the state legislature legislator has dumbass written on her forehead. And I think that she probably has a lot of colleagues who feel the same way. Uh, we'll talk about more on the D.C. angle of this specifically with Martenzi Johnson. Wrote a really interesting piece for Anscape coming up at 6 o'clock. Next, though, back to the football team and more conversation about Sam Howell and Eric Bieniemy's fit together uh, as part of Take Command. That will be Not My Beat on this Wednesday.